We, uh, we start a new series this morning. Uh, we're going to, over the next few uh, weeks and months, walk through various kinds of relationships that we have. Uh, we're created uh, to be uh, in relationship, and we're going to look at this morning the way that that is uh, seen in the very foundation of who we are in the very opening uh, words of Genesis as uh, we hear and know that uh, the Lord creates us in, in His image. And so we're going to unpack that uh, today. Uh, there is, you know, this, this tendency, I don't know if this is limited to, to a few odd people, but um, you, you can talk about, uh, you know, having a certain favorite animal, and then sometimes we talk about the favorite animal being sort of our spirit animal, like we like the spirit of that, uh, and, the, and the lifestyle, if you will, of that animal. It sort of in, it gives us a sense of uh, vigor or strength or wisdom or what have you. And, uh, you know, again, if I had a spirit animal, it would probably be a snow leopard. Uh, I'm kind of fond of snow leopards because they live most of their life alone in the mountains. Uh, and, and it just sounds really great. They have these amazing uh, vistas and uh, I love their big tails. But yeah, so you have this beautiful animal that lives alone uh, in, in a beautiful location. And then, oddly enough, if Artis's uh, favorite animal is the uh, sea otter, uh, which likes to live in family groups and float gently uh, on its back and enjoy water and sea and uh, snacks. And so, you know, it's kind of odd that you would get a sea otter and a uh, snow leopard in the same family. But, you know, God can work these things out. But, of course, the challenge is uh, that as, as Christians, uh, we know that the, the spirit and the image that we have does not start, does not come from uh, those things in creation, but it actually comes from the Creator Himself. And so we understand our spirit, uh, that which uh, gives us uh, direction and focus, not to be something we derive from creation itself, but it's given to us by the Creator And so let's look at Genesis chapter 1. We're going to uh, read just verses uh, 26 uh, through 27. Hear now God's word. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the whole earth and subdue it. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we ask again that the power of your word lived out by your Son and impressed upon us by the presence of the Spirit might again fully engage our hearts and minds and soul, that our strength might be renewed and that we might be refreshed in what it means to be image bearers, Lord God Almighty. And we pray that anything that is said this morning that is not true or useful, may those words quickly be forgotten. In Christ's name, amen. So when we move from sort of a notion of spirit animals into what the Spirit of God really is, uh, we were created clearly to be in community. The whole point of Genesis chapter 1 is that uh, when he gets to the creation of humanity, let us make them. 
Now, what we know at the very least is that it's a discussion within the Trinity. It might additionally be what is called sort of the heavenly council that sits uh, in some way present uh, around and uh, in God's throne room as he gathers himself together, uh, as he gathers uh, his created uh, beings around him. But at the very least, and clearly the focus of this text, is that the us of the Trinity wants to make something like himself. Something that exists in community, that exists in relationship, that is designed to communicate with a being like itself, to engage in community and life together. We are created to be in community because we were created by a community. We were created by the community of the Trinity to be in Community. We know this to be true because God uses the second telling of the creation story in Genesis chapter 2 as a way of reinforcing how it is not good for humanity to be alone. A human alone is not good. It doesn't mean that there's never a time for quiet or time alone, and occasionally one can be a snow leopard. That's not the point. The point is our regular, normal existence is one that is in community, in relationship, so that God in his uh, providentially telling the story over a longer period of time, breaking down what the creation of humanity looked like, walks us through the process because God delights in process, through the creation of Adam And then the recognition that after there is nothing that corresponds to or creates community with Adam, but God himself, interestingly enough, God creates one who is completing and fulfilling of the human existence. God creates Eve. It is no small thing that God chooses to create a need in humanity that he chooses not to fulfill. Adam had perfect relationship with God. What do you mean Adam was alone? And yet this text tells us that it's not good for Adam to be alone. There was not one who completed community for him. We weren't image bearers without the creation of another human being. We were created to exist in community. And so what is this community based on and structured as we look at the Trinity? First, it's based uh, in love. It is based in uh, love that is action, and it is based in love that is self-giving. So first, a love that is action towards the other. You see the quote on the front of your worship folder. For God to exist as Father, there had to be one that the love went towards. Love of self uh, is not the kind of love that the Bible talks about as being the love that defines who God is. God is one who loves by loving another. And within the Trinity, that means his love for the Spirit and his love for the Son. And the Son's love for the Father and the Spirit and the Spirit's love for the Father and the Son. It is a love for the good and the glorification of the other. Think of 
Jesus' high priestly prayer as it's described in John 17. And all of Jesus' description and desire that the Father would be praised, that the Spirit would be glorified, that these would be seen for the glory of who they are and what they are, in fellowship and relationship with one another, and that Jesus' work and acts would bring honor to who they are. Not glory for himself, but to the Trinity. The Father's statement at the baptism of Jesus, this is my Son in who I am well pleased. Listen to him, honor him, love him. God, the Father, points to the Son. It is a love that calls the other to be in relationship and community and the good of the other. Ephesians chapter 1, we looked at it a couple years ago when we walked through uh, our study in Ephesians, is this amazing unpacking of the richness and interplay and mutual service and love and honoring of the Trinity as they come into relationship and care for us as fallen human beings. And how they are honoring and glorifying one another in their work on our behalf. In relationship with one another. This love, this love that is action, not mere sentiment, is deferential and submissive. And this is modeled in the Trinity. It is for love's sake that Mark 14, 36 reads the way it does. If there be any other way, but not my will, but your will be done. Or Mark chapter 1, where after Jesus' baptism, where the Father has declared his, his love for the Son, the Spirit drives Jesus out into the wilderness. Jesus is led, directed by the Spirit. Any ways in which you and I or human beings are tempted to sort of understand the Trinity in our rather ham-fisted power structures always fails. We see it through our lens of power. We pervert certain notions of submission and deference into our ways of exerting control over one another, and none of it has anything to do with love. And love doesn't even know when it's submitting. And love doesn't even really know and understand. It's conscious of what it's giving up. It does in the sense that Jesus knew what he was facing when he faced his own crucifixion. It's not if he was oblivious to what was going to happen to him, but in his submission to the wisdom of the Father. For Jesus, there seemed like there really was no choice, but of course there was the ability to wrestle and to ask the question. And yet the love of the Son was seen as submission to the Father. And at this moment, I I want to point out also, let's not forget that the love of the Father cost him everything he had. Right? We sometimes think of the Father, or or I'll just speak for myself, right? If I read non-critically and too quickly, 
I can get the notion that really Jesus bore the brunt of this thing. And then the Spirit doesn't have a great job because he has to live in me. And me is not a good place to live. I don't like being in there very often, uh, let alone with the Spirit. And the Spirit knows all of my sins. And I'm thankfully ignorant of many of the things that I do are sinful because it would crush me. But the Spirit lives in me, knows all of that. And you think the Father at least gets to be sort of aloof. Right? He sends the Son, and the Son dies for us, and then the Spirit has to live in us. But if we slow down just a moment, and perhaps you have, and I want to encourage you to continue to do so, just imagine the Father giving up his perfect relationship with the Son. When Jesus cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That means the Father, whose love begot the Son, has been severed. And whether or not it was for seconds or what you and I would consider from our understanding of time, just moments. I mean, Jesus was only in the tomb for a couple of days and he was only on the cross for a couple of hours. And yet when you talk about the infinite reality of who God is, a momentary break in relationship is an eternity. Any separation within the Trinity, any inability to be in perfect harmony for whatever period of time you and I may use a clock to determine does not do justice to the scale of a perfect God who has been in perfect union with himself since ever to have a moment when that was not true. And for the Father to do that, to give up his relationship with the Son for you and I that he might become sin for us. As human fathers, we sometimes understand what it is to have the pain of seeing our children suffer or challenging them and seeing them have to be far away from us. If we as fallen fathers can sometimes feel the loss of our relationship with our kids when we ask them to do things that call them to be physically away from us for a period or challenge them, imagine how much more so the perfect loving father experiences the absence and the break of relationship with his son. The Trinity has a perfect love. Any break in that would be hell, is hell, is the very definition of the absence of God. God experienced that within himself in some fashion, a breaking of that perfect relationship for you and for me. And so love is an action on behalf of the other. It is a love that serves and glorifies the other. Which is not surprising that, of course, the love then is defined often as self-giving or sacrificial. Right? We've talked about the perfect relationship within the Trinity that allows it to interact with one another. And inevitably, we see that often in sacrifice, uh, sacrifice to be apart, to set apart, and to be made holy. So... When one loves, one sets the other apart. One sacrifices a part of our own significance to honor and love and care for the other. It is a sacrifice. It is, again, in its best term, that English word in its history means to set apart and make holy. It doesn't mean necessarily cutting somebody's throat or burning an animal up. To sacrifice means to give something of myself for the other, to honor the other, to set it apart and to see it as lovely and beautiful and distinct from me. Self-giving love is the honor of the other being. 
So the Father gave everything He had. The Son gave everything He had. The Spirit gave everything He had that they might be in relationship and fellowship. And we see its nature when it is extended to us as they give everything they have that we might have unity with one another again and with them. Remember, there is no way human relationships will be restored until our relationship with God is restored. The ability to trust another human being comes from our understanding of their willingness to love us and us to love them. And when we've perverted love, when it's primarily driven by the self, then you are expendable. I love you as long as you're useful to me. And there are usually various limits as to how much I can love somebody, and they take that love without giving something back before the accounts don't work out anymore, and we cut our losses. And so God had to restore our love with Him, that trust and that full understanding that He gave Himself, made us holy, made us distinct in his creative act and in his placing of us as those created in his image, he had to restore that in Christ, which took all that he had, that that love might again be restored, that we might love one another well, that we might allow, be allowed to again engage in our relationship with one another. This is how community is designed to function. It is first and foremost an understanding of how Father, Son, and Holy Spirit interact with one another in their perfect love and self-giving relationship. That we will have any sense of how we are to interact with one another. We weren't created in a separate or different model. We weren't created in herds. We weren't created in small clans. We weren't created to exist uh, in small family groups like chimpanzees, nor were we created to exist in groups or solar. Solar? Anyway, I'm not going to say that. I can't say the word. Solo? Singular? It's an S word. I'm getting there. We weren't created to be snow leopards. We can't look to creation and get an idea of how our relationships are supposed to function. They aren't created in the image of God. Does that mean they have no connection to it? No. Of course, there's some ways in which I'm sure all of creation reflects the glory and the fingerprints of its creator. But we are not going to learn how to live together from any source other than an understanding of the relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The practical implications of a triune God existing in relationship in such a degree that we describe Him as one and three. That is the foundation for all that we will know and investigate when we talk about what it means for us to be in relationship back with God and with one another. So my encouragement this week is to read Ephesians chapter 1. Read Jesus' high priestly prayer 
in John chapter 17. Reflect again on Genesis 1 and 2 in light of the image of what it means to be created in community and a community founded on the very definition, the very embodiment, the very richness of full eternal love. There are many things that God has already blessed us with that we are delighting in as we reflect his glory. But there's so much more in the richness of what it means to be created in the image of God, designed for relationship, relationships in love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you be merciful to the preaching of your word. We thank you again for who you are and how you have created us. We pray again, Lord, that we would delight in the mystery and delight in the promise of the Trinity. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.